0: So if you don't mind, as you got your Bibles there, go ahead and turn to the Ezekiel passage, 724, Ezekiel 36, and you can put your finger uh, there in that Romans passage because we'll come back to it. I want to show you why we chose these Old Testament passages because this, what I'm going to talk about this morning is a, a robust and comprehensive vision of the salvation of God, perhaps that we don't think about much. And I want you to see that this isn't just New Testament theology, but this is across the Bible. So just uh, there in Ezekiel 36, I won't read the whole passage, but look at verse 33. It says, thus says the Lord, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities. So right off the bat in this section, he has just come from in in the Ezekiel passage about talking about giving them a new heart. He's addressing the sin problem. After I cleanse you from your iniquities. And then look at verse 35. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. So he makes this connection, there's a sin problem that he deals with, and the result of that is an inhabitants that's like the Garden of Eden. That's the vision that Ezekiel has, and he finishes by saying, I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it. It's a certain promise that he's going to deal with the sin problem in the human heart and he's going to bring a renewal to the world that is very concrete. right, now flip over to Isaiah 11. It's on page 575. Another very famous passage about the holistic, comprehensive salvation that the Messiah would bring. Isaiah starts by saying in verse one, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, sort of strange language. Jesse is is the father of David, King David. And it was clear in Old Testament teaching that the Messiah, the anointed one, the redeemer of Israel was gonna come from David. And so Isaiah making that connection says, a shoot from the stump of Jesse is gonna come. An obvious nod towards the Messiah. And then skip down to verse 6. And this is what he says. When this Messiah comes, what will happen? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Couldn't help but think that National Geographic and Animal Planet will be out of business when King Jesus is on his throne. There will be no gazelles getting eaten by alligators. In fact, there will be videos of young children playing over the dens of adders. Why? Why? Because when the comprehensive salvation of Jesus Christ is full, there will be no more harm on the earth. Not in the by and by, not in the, in the clouds and some ethereal spirituality. On the earth, God intends to reign over a world with no harm. Now, Romans 8. You can start seeing the echoes here in this Romans 8 passage, Right? We'll get to the verses I read, but I want you to know, you know, you know that the there's the, when we pull, when we start preaching through expositionally through passages of scripture, those passages aren't in isolation, right? There's verses coming into those passages and verses that come out. You have to pay attention to those. Okay. We're not eisegeting anything. We're exegeting. We're pulling out what's there. And it's, I think it's important that you see the, some of the ideas coming into Romans eight eighteen and the verses coming out. Look at Romans eight, one. The first word of Romans eight one in the Greek is is what we translate the word therefore. It says in the ESV, it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whenever you see the therefore in the in the scriptures, you have to ask, what's it there for? Right? It points you to something that was previously said. What was previously said in Romans one through seven is Paul's unbelievably robust understanding of our gospel. That a salvation has come to Israel, through Israel, that is for the whole world, and it's the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. It's rooted in Abraham and faith, uh, it's now given to us as we are buried with Christ and raised to new life, Romans 6, what I do with this old man that carries around the sin in Romans 7, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ that I'm liberated, therefore, Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation. It's Drastic shift in his writing because now he takes this robust teaching about Christ in the gospel and says, You know what, folks? There's no more condemnation for you. Cancer can't condemn you. The devil can't condemn you. In fact, you can't even condemn yourself. Jesus Christ is your Savior. That's how he starts Romans 8. And then look at the other bookend of Romans 8, verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So Romans 8.1 says, there's no condemnation. Romans 8.37 says, you're more than conquerors. This this vision that Paul has, that he is giving to the people is that there is no condemnation and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So comprehensive is his salvation. Now, why is this important? I titled this sermon, The Greatest Why. And I believe that when a person understands why they are doing something, why they believe something, their confidence source. We've already stated together what we believe. I believe in God, the father almighty, the apostles creed. Why do we believe that? What is, what is the vision that God has given us for why that truth of the apostles creed is for us? Or let me ask it this way. Why do you believe what you believe? I'm going to give you my thesis for this whole sermon right up front because I'm going to repeat it seven times probably. Here it is. The world is not as God created or intended it to be. There is most definitely a clear and clearly a problem with the human heart. This human problem has affected all of God's creation. Therefore, God intends to rescue and restore all of his creation back to its intended purposes by rescuing and restoring human hearts back to him through Jesus Christ. I'm gonna repeat that over and over. Why is that important? Let me give you an example. Why do we go to church this morning? Why are you here? The answer could be because God is worthy of worship worship, and and he commanded us to worship. Or you could say it's good for me to worship and to have my heart nourished by God. That's true. But the world is not as it should be. There's most definitely and clearly a problem with the human heart. And this problem has affected all of God's creation. Therefore, God intends to rescue and restore all of the creation back to him through rescuing the human heart. Why do we worship? Because this God intends to save the whole world. So we worship him. Why do we send Abigail to India and other people across the globe? Why do we walk next door to share our faith? Because the world is not as it intended. And God intends to rescue all of creation by rescuing human hearts. Why is there so much suffering in the world? The world is not as God created it to be. There is a human heart problem that God intends to fix so that the problem of suffering in the creation is also fixed. And that's where Romans 8, 18 comes for us. So let's go there and let's mine what we can out of this. You can see in Romans 8, 18, his first word is for. The Greek word there is gar. It's used 102 times in the book of Romans. It's the word for, because it's given a defense. It's used 13 times here in Romans 8. Paul is making a defense for why you should believe this gospel, and he starts it here by saying, For the, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Is Paul making light of human suffering? I've experienced suffering that is pretty intense, and I know some people, even in this room, are experiencing intense affliction right now. Is Paul saying, Oh, it's not worth comparing? There's a glory, you just need to kind of get over it. There's a glory that's bigger than that suffering. Just kind of get through it. That would be patronizing, wouldn't it? If we, if we just took that on the surface, he'd be patronizing our suffering. But he's saying there is a glory that's greater than the suffering you're experiencing on earth. Wow, Paul. Why is the future glory to be revealed greater? It doesn't feel that way. Well, verse 19 is another for, another because. He's building the argument. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He tries to defend why your suffering isn't as monumental as the glory that is to come by saying creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. What? Why would the birds and the rivers and the mosquitoes and biology and chemistry and all those care and long for anything, much less for Christians? Really? I thought Christianity was just about souls and getting us, you know, getting our souls right before God. Why does Paul say the creation is longing for these sons of God to be revealed? What does that have to do with the suffering of the world, Paul? He makes a connection that this longing is connected to humans. How are the sons of God revealed? The simple answer is they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You become a son and daughter of God by trusting Jesus. But this salvation, as Paul says, is much more comprehensive than just your soul. It is your soul. You will dwell in fellowship with Jesus Christ. You will be in reconciled to God. But that reconciliation has a much more cosmic salvation than you maybe have even thought. Remember, the world is not as, it, as God created it. There's a human problem that God intended to deal with so that the cosmic problem of his creation could be fixed as well. And verse 20 spells it out for us with another four clause. Four, because the creation, verse 20, was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Futility, the creation was subject to futility. The NIV translates that word frustration. Other translations say God's curse. What you have here is Paul saying creation was cursed by God. God is at fault here. The creation is groaning, as he says later, in the pains of childbirth. Why? Because God subjected it to futility. You know this if you walk in creation much. One of our favorite places as a family to go is into the northwest corner of Wyoming where Teton National Park is and where Yellowstone National Park is. And you don't have to spend much time in Yellowstone before this groaning of creation is just absolutely clear because you can see a fox Dart across and get the groundhog down the thing and trying to eat it for dinner. And then you can watch the pack of wolves stalking the pack of elk right down the, right down the, the meadow there and they're going to eat them for dinner. And then you can walk down the geyser basin where the ground itself is bubbling with heat and at, and at 1152 every day, 223 feet of boiling water shoots out old faithful because the creation is groaning. And Yellowstone just exudes this unrest that's going on down to the core of our creation. Scriptures say God did that. God subjected the creation to its futility. Why? Well, the scriptures are clear. In Genesis 3, when Adam sinned, God said to him, cursed is the ground because of you. So let me say it this way. It is Adam's fault that creation is in bondage. Even more personal, it is my fault that God subjected the creation to futility. That'll change the way you think about sin. God hates sin so much. He brought the mosquitoes, the rivers, the seasons, the mountains, everything in creation under a futile judgment, cursing. The futility and bondage, the cursing of the creation is a result of the sin of Will Witherington. So yes, storms, abuse, cancer, are my fault. G.K. Chesterton famously said in an editorial, answering the question, what's wrong with the world? Remember what he said? I am. But be careful with this. Be careful how you think about this. Many people misunderstand this. Let me give you an example. In my backyard, in some of your backyards, there are some magnificent trees called ash trees and if you know your ash trees well, they're all dying. The emerald ash borer has gotten in there and it's about that big and it's eating all the ash trees in Kentucky and Ohio and Pennsylvania, so they're dying. And two weeks ago, we had a very large one in our backyard fall to the ground and the good side of it is I got enough firewood for the next winter. Ash is a great firewood, uh, burning, wood-burning wood. And that's a good example of the creation suffering, this beetle, a bug, eating my ash trees. But let me increase the narrative. What if I were walking by that tree at that moment and the tree fell on top of me and killed me? Some people would say, gosh, what kind of sin has Will been living in that God threw down that tree on top of his head? And that is not what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying that if that tree fell on me, that there's some sin that I had committed the night before that God brought that tree. Punishment for sin is either in apart from God in hell or on the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't mistake that. Consequences of sin, a feudal culture creation is brought under God's judgment because of sin. And in fact, Jesus was asked the same question one time. He walked up on a man, 41 years old, who had been born blind. His parents gave birth to a blind child. That's intense suffering. And the disciples understanding that curse, that that's not how it should be, ask the question, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? Surely it's one of their sins that caused him to be blind. And Jesus gives the answer that only the creator of the universe could give. He says, guys, it wasn't that his parents sinned or that he sinned, but that the glory of God might be shown through him. You see, he doesn't take the dagger out of the truth that sin caused that ailment. That's why he was here. He came to eradicate the problem of blindness. And so the whole narrative in John 9 goes to, you guys can't see spiritually because of what I did to this guy physically. Jesus' connection to the glory of God is exactly what Paul makes in Galatians, I mean, in, in Romans 8 that the creation was subject to futility in hope. Folks, the devil never does things in hope. The devil never brings you under subjection in hope. He seeks to destroy you. The world will never bring futility in hope. In fact, your own heart doesn't bring hope. God, even when he's cursing the creation, does so in hope. What then is this hope? Look at verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What hope? That creation itself, the lion will lay with the lamb, the calf will eat with the ox, the children will play with snakes. The children are not gonna be born blind. Trees will not fall on men's heads and on and on. Creation will be liberated and obtain the freedom that we have as children of God. This is just another way of Paul saying as he did earlier, the revealing of the sons of God will result in the liberation of the creation. This is just another way of Ezekiel saying, after I've cleansed you from your sin, I will restore the garden of Eden. The world is not as God intended it to be. There is most definitely and clearly a problem with the human heart. This human problem has affected all of creation. God intends to deal with both by dealing with the human heart. And that's what he did in Christ. Now, let me apply this to try to make it Bring it down for us. Four quick applications. The most obvious one to this passage is if you see the world as broken and frustrated and you're frustrated at the world and the suffering of the world bothers you, the answer, become a son and daughter of God. I don't know where you are this morning. Some of you may be on the fence with this. Some of you may not be sure that you can cash all of your chips in on Jesus because you've been just thought it was just about your soul and you can make yourself feel good with all the other things what about this vision what about fixing the problems in the world are you able to do that there is one and it's the creator of the universe himself who is going to liberate creation how when the sons of God the daughters of God are revealed today will you embrace this salvation when Jesus was on the earth he did not heal all the diseases of the earth. In fact, you know, he was only doing ministry for three years and he left a lot of disease, a lot of pain undone. Why? Because he came to inaugurate this salvation. He came to show us and he made a spectacle of the man uh, born blind. He walked on water. He cursed a fig tree. He calmed a storm. Why? To prove to us this vision of a comprehensive salvation is his vision. And he will do it by revealing the sons and daughters of God. And there's a climactic point in, in Revelation where John says that all of creation bowed down and said, Amen. The Greek word, so let it be. Creation itself liberated when the sons of God are revealed. You should become a son of God today. This is a compelling vision. Number two, application. This passage demands that we should understand the devastation of our own sin. It is true that sin is a direct affront to the holiness of God, and that's good motivation to deal with sin. God is holy, sin is is against the holiness of God, you should deal with your sin. Another motivation, my sin sent Jesus Christ to the cross, therefore I I I should flee sin because it sent my savior to the cross, I don't wanna go back there. Let me give you another motivation if you need it. My sin is the reason all creation is subject to futility. So if I desire the creation to be a different place, stop sinning. Scripture actually used that phrase, stop sinning. The robust understanding of God's salvation will give you the humility to look inward at the problems of the world and not seek to blame the problems in the world on someone else. Deal with your own sin. Number three, stand firm in the day of suffering and difficulty. Because this teaching of Romans 8 says that the world is not what God intended it to be, but that He subjected it to futility, but He did it in hope, means that all suffering is going to be eradicated by God. All suffering. The greatest proof, he goes on to say later in Romans 8. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's true that the suffering you are experiencing now is intense. But as Paul has said, it is not worth comparing to the glory that we revealed. Why? Because when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he became the first fruits of a salvation that will result in all suffering being eradicated. When the Bible says all suffering means all, The ash tree will be liberated from its little boring beetle and your body from the atrocities of tiny diseases. God intends to eradicate both. They will not hurt and harm on my holy mountain. I am the Lord and I will do it. The last application, and maybe this is the one that I most want you to connect with. When I read a passage like this, and this maybe is my personality as much as it is anything, but I read it and the way I wrote this was, I want you to understand the power that you have as a child of God. I want you to quit limping through life, Christian. I want you to quit cowering in the face of the enemy. I want you to stand. What creation is longing for is God's children to live up into their glory. God wants you to live in the glory that he's given you. Jesus said, pray this way. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't say in the by and by one day you'll get to do it. Just grit your teeth through this. And when we cross the Jordan over to the promised land and you can do it there, Right now, I want you to live in the glory that I've given you at my resurrection. It is yours. You are a resurrected Christian. Live in that glory. Because when you do, all creation's liberated. That feudal accounting firm, that feudal bank branch, that feudal construction site, that business that you have is longing for you to rise up as a child of God. That high school is longing for you as a teacher or a student to rise up as a child of God. That dance studio, that ball team is longing for you as a parent or a participant to rise up as a child of God. What your children are longing for you as a parent is for you to rise up as a child of God. Children, what your parents are longing for from you is for you to rise up as a child of God. When that happens, liberation. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This passage says, you are a child of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. Live up into that glory. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of doing a funeral for a man that I came to know through the last couple years, and I say it was a privilege because I learned so much from watching this man and this family struggle through suffering. He had COPD and congestive heart failure, and he just suffered for years, and I'd go by and visit him and talk with him sometimes at the... At the hospital when he was rushed there in the middle of the night, and sometimes at his home. And our last visit, second to last visit, his last visit when he it was when he was totally in hospice care and comatose. But the second to last visit, he was still his mind was still very sharp. And and he asked me, he said, "Well, how do I how do I know for certain that life awaits me after this? How do, how do I know for certain?" <laughs> like, sheesh. <laughs> pastor on trial here. how are you going to answer that question right and I thought I want to just give a quick trite response so I you know, gave one of those Nehemiah arrow prayers oh lord help me right here this man is dying and I said, I said Tom I think there's two, two answers the first one is you can believe the promises of God what he said is true and I quoted John 11 Anyone who, you know, I'm the resurrection and the life. Any man who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Tom, you can believe that promise. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to make that promise sure for those who believe. I said, I, but I know what you're going through right now as you lay here facing your mortality and you're dying. And, it, and it's hard to just think about promises written 2,000 years ago. And I said, I think God gave us a second way because He, not only did he condescend to us in Christ, but I think creation is another condesc- cond- condescension of God. So I said, Tom, it was, this was mid-February, I said, Tom, in my backyard right now are all these trees that have no leaves on them. The birds aren't bustling around my backyard and chirping. It's just dormant, dead, quiet. But in about three weeks, little buds are going to come out and flowers are going to come and green's going to come and the birds are going to move back in and my backyard is going to be teeming with life. And I said, I think God did that to say to us, a wintry death is going to result in a spring of eternity of life. I intend to do that for you, Tom. And I intend to do that for you, Robin. And I intend to do that for you, Ash Tree, And I tend to do that for you on and on. God is rescuing and restoring all of creation by rescuing and restoring his people. And Tom sat up in his bed as best as he could and he said, beaming eyes, smile, I love spring. And he died two days later. His wife said he was afraid of dying. And she came and said, I don't know what you and him talked about, but he wasn't afraid of dying after that moment. C.S. Lewis said it this way The great prophecy of Narnia. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Folks, that's the vision of God for salvation. That's what we're about. That's why we believe what we believe. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we admit we don't live in light of this vision very much. Help us in our triviality. Help us, as, help us in our familiarity with our faith to live up into this glory that you have so clearly shown us. Thank you for condescending to us in Christ and paying for our sin problem. Thank you, Christ, for your salvation. And thank you for condescending to us to show us in creation that you are about life. You give life to the dead. Even in our suffering, we have hope. Lord, help us to believe that. And now as we come to this meal, nourish our souls in assurance of this salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.